Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right. Well, after that little cheery passage, welcome to everybody. Good to see you. If you have a Bible, turn with me to that passage, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. As I said earlier, my name's Kent. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you with us this morning. And we have an interesting passage in front of us. We'll get to that here in just a bit. Uh, But if you're here for the first time this morning, once again, welcome. So glad you're here. We are in a teaching series where we are just walking through the book of Matthew in the Bible, sort of story by story, passage by passage. And we're seeing what we can learn from the life and the ministry of Jesus. So last Sunday, if you missed it, if you weren't here with us, was all about Jesus's plan for making his movement known to the world. That's what it was all about. And his plan, we found out, is his people, his disciples, going about being his representatives in that ancient context. So we talked for quite a bit about what that means exactly, what that looked like, what it looks like in our context today to do something similar. And today's passage in many ways sort of picks up where all of last week's passage left off. So Jesus is still sending out his disciples to make him known in the world. He's still preparing them for that task. But beginning in verse 16 of chapter 10, he starts talking about one particular thing that they should expect as they go about that mission. He says that they should expect opposition. As disciples of Jesus go out into the world to announce the good news of the kingdom, they should expect from time to time to be opposed in doing that. In fact, Jesus starts off this passage with this sentence. You guys just heard it read in verse 16. It says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, In case you're not dialed into how the animal kingdom works, sheep in the midst of wolves does not generally go good for the sheep. Were we all clear on that? Y'all are smart people. I'm sure you picked up on that. But just so we're all clear, that does not go good for us. But that is the word picture that Jesus gives his disciples to help prepare them for the mission that he has given them. Sheep in the midst of wolves, Godspeed to you all. That's Jesus' final statement to them. Can you imagine a less encouraging metaphor than that one if you are Jesus' disciples? That's what he wants them to expect as they go about making him known to the world. And as intimidating as that is, I think we would be well served today to recapture some of this mentality that Jesus relays to his disciples. If, If we are following Jesus faithfully, if we are seeking to make him known to our world and our context today, I think we should also expect, at least from time to time, opposition of our own. 
It may not be quite as intense as Jesus' early disciples faced, but it is opposition just the same. We may very well be resisted and marginalized and ostracized and at times even persecuted because we follow Jesus. And like Jesus' disciples, I think we should expect for that to happen. Now, as I say that, I do cringe just a little because of the potential misunderstandings of what I just said. Because there is a way for us to expect opposition and persecution that is actually light years away from what Jesus intends to say here. When I was in high school, we did something called See You at the Pole. Does anybody know what See You at the Pole is? Do they still do that? Yeah? Still do at some schools at least? Okay. So See You at the Pole, if you're unfamiliar, uh, was an event one day a year, I think mostly at public schools, where all the Christians in that particular school would meet around the flagpole in the morning in the front of the school and they would pray together where everyone could see. It was a way of communicating, I think, to people that we were Christians. Now, if you're asking the questions, uh, why were we praying around the American flag, or why were we praying in public for people to see us when Jesus specifically says not to do that, you're thinking too hard about it, okay? So don't, don't think too much about it. It was just something that we did at the time. For better or worse, this is what we did one day a year. And one particular year, our school administrators asked if we could start this event, see you at the poll, about 20 minutes earlier than the previous year. The reason for that was that pretty much every student who was at the event the previous year ended up being about 20 minutes late to their first class. So it was a very reasonable request from the school administration. They didn't ask us not to do the event. They didn't even ask us not to have it on school property. They just said, hey, could you guys do it 20 minutes earlier so that people aren't late to their first class? Now, that particular year, I was an office assistant, so I got to see an email that a parent of one of the students sent in in response to that very reasonable request from the school administrators. It was not a very reasonable email, just to be clear on that. So that email to the school administration from a parent said, and I quote, you, they all know, or you all know, that if we start the event earlier, less students will be there. And then in all caps at the end of the email, the words, this is persecution, with four exclamation points for effect. Okay, first off, no. <laughs> Second off, also no. But I do think that email is somewhat representative of the posture that a lot of American Christians have towards persecution. Is it not? They, they expect it, but they expect it in a way that they almost go out looking for it when it doesn't exist. They try to see it around every corner and in every single interaction. And sometimes they even invent it or imagine it where it doesn't exist in the first place. Just so we're clear, that is not the posture that Jesus is advising in this passage for his disciples to take. That's not what he means when he talks about how we are to expect opposition. In fact, in many ways, that is the precise opposite of the response that he wants his disciples to take. 
He doesn't tell them to expect opposition so that they, they throw up their hands and throw a tantrum every time it happens. He tells them to expect opposition simply so it doesn't catch them off guard when it happens, so it doesn't surprise them, so it doesn't blindside them. I think Peter, who actually would have been here for this speech, this sending out speech from Jesus, I think he puts it well later on in his letter. He says in 1 Peter 4.12, we'll put this on the screen, beloved, do not be surprised. Do not be what? Surprised. Don't be shocked or offended or caught off guard at the fiery trial, which is his metaphor for persecution, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. That's it. That's the goal. Not that we would panic and cry out and complain when we encounter opposition, but that we would see it and simply go, oh yeah, Jesus said this would happen. Let's press on. No surprises there, let's not get distracted, let's not get off mission or off message. Jesus said this was gonna happen, let's continue about what we were doing in the first place. Jesus' goal is that his disciples would not freak out about opposition, but that they would instead press on. That's what he's trying to get his disciples to embody. Okay. So in order to help us have that type of better response to opposition in our world, Jesus is going to offer his early disciples and by association us today, three types of things in this passage. He's gonna give us expectations, promises, and instructions. Expectations, promises, and instructions. This is a longer passage that we're gonna cover today, verses 16 through 42. But I would argue that everything in that passage fits in one of those three categories. So today, rather than walk through the passage line by line in sequential order like we normally do, we're going to walk through it just using those three headers to organize everything. And I've got three sets of three points. So if you're a note taker or you're like type one on the Enneagram, this is your dream teaching. Congratulations. The rest of us are going to get through it little by little, okay? So feel free to take notes if that's something you like to do. Three sections, three points in each section, and I'm actually gonna go fast, I promise. I mostly promise. So the first one, first expectation that we find is that we are to expect opposition from our own people. Expect opposition from our own people. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus says that his people should beware because people will deliver them over to courts and flog them in their synagogues. Now, the only people that had synagogues at the time were Jewish people, and the disciples were themselves Jewish. So, so notice that while they very well may be opposed by the occupying Roman government or pagan dictators and rulers, that's not what Jesus leads with in the passage. He leads off by saying that they will be opposed by their own people, by other proclaiming God-fearing people who are supposed to be on the same team as them. I will tell you that in our almost five years of existence as a church, we have certainly encountered resistance and opposition from the outside world, so people in our city that don't know or follow Jesus. But do you know who is usually the most antagonistic towards us? Religious people. 
other churches that don't like how we go about things, proclaiming Christians that come around our church and immediately start pointing out all the things that we do that are not the right way or aren't good enough for them. The people who think that we're not conservative enough or liberal enough as a church, traditional enough or modern enough, those are the people that tend to situate themselves most consistently and aggressively against us. Jesus said that would happen. You may very well get resistance from the people that you think are on the same team as you. Next, Jesus says that we should expect opposition from our own families, from our own families. So in verse 21 and then 34 through 37, Jesus says that brother will deliver brother over to death. Parents will be set against children. Children will be set against parents. He says that a person's enemies will be those of their own household. Jesus prepares his disciples for opposition that may very well come from their own flesh and blood, their own immediate family. Because at the end of the day, you've got to understand that deciding to follow Jesus is a decision to shift your allegiance. That's what following Jesus is. And one of the strongest allegiances that people had back then, and many still have today, is the allegiance to their family. So Jesus knows that when his disciples start to shift their allegiance away from their families and toward the kingdom of God, they are going to encounter resistance for doing that. And Jesus says it very well could get ugly. Family members may deliver over other family members to be killed as a result of that. Now, for many of us today in our society, it may not be quite that intense with our family. It may not be life or death for a lot of us that live here in America, but opposition still absolutely happens. I've heard about many parents who find out that their son or their daughter is a part of a church where their son or daughter is walking in openness and honesty with other followers of Jesus, and those parents will quickly chide their kid to not air their dirty laundry in public. You ever heard somebody say that? I've heard times about where, where a spouse in a particular marriage wants to open up and get gospel help for their marriage from community or from counseling or whatever, and their, the other husband or wife quickly responds by saying that we really should keep those things private and not talk about them. The reality is that following Jesus, truly aligning your life with the kingdom of God is often going to create some friction with other members of your family that don't live in the same way. Jesus says we can expect that to be the case when we follow him. And third, Jesus says that his disciples can ultimately expect opposition from anyone, from anyone. Verse 22, Jesus finally says, you will be hated by all for my namesake. Hated by how many? All. Ultimately, opposition really can come from anyone and anywhere. The reality is that the gospel, by its very nature, is disruptive and divisive at times. It makes exclusive claims to a world that does not like exclusive claims. It makes claims of ultimate authority to a world that prefers no authority at all outside of themselves. It makes claims of absolute truth to a world that prefers to make up its own truths. And because of that, you can expect resistance from most anywhere that the true gospel is proclaimed in our world. There's simply no way around it. So we should expect opposition from our own people. 
expect opposition from our own family, and we should expect opposition from anyone and everyone. Does everybody feel sufficiently cheery and encouraged so far in this teaching? All right, let's move to the next section, which are the promises that we find in this passage. So Jesus talks about promises. The first one is that Jesus promises us that all will be revealed. This is verses 26 and 27. He says, all will be revealed. Specifically, he says, nothing is covered that will not be revealed and nothing is hidden that will not be made known. Have you ever been watching a TV show or a movie, maybe like a true crime or courtroom type show? I know there's like half a million of those out there, right? You ever been watching one of those shows and one of the characters in a particularly tense moment says something to the effect of, I know that the truth will come out? You ever heard that line? They always sound so confident when they say it, right? It's like, hey, I don't care what you do right now. I know the truth will come out. But can we be honest? Does the truth always come out in this world, this side of eternity? I mean, how many corrupt leaders and politicians are out there just sitting on a mountain of things about them that will not come out really ever, at least until years after they die? We've seen a lot of that lately, right? I mean, how often does the truth not actually come out about someone? In our world as it stands, the truth does not always come out. But what Jesus is saying is that in the kingdom of God, we can rest assured the truth will always prevail. If you did the right thing and people treated you poorly anyway, that truth will come out. If you did what was just and you were opposed anyway, that truth will come out. In the kingdom of Jesus, we don't have to wonder if justice will be done and truth will prevail. It will always. And here's why that matters practically. That means when we are mistreated or marginalized or opposed, we don't have to be the ones that settle the score in response. We don't have to lash out in return or get even with those people that mistreat us. We can trust that God will ultimately settle all of that, which means we can press on with our mission of making Jesus known. Second, Jesus promises that the Father attentively cares for us. The Father attentively cares for us. Verses 29 through 31, Jesus grabs one of his favorite illustrations for talking about God's care and attention for his people. He says that we are of more value to God than many sparrows are. So sparrows in Jesus' day, as he indicates, were about the cheapest, most common animal that you could find. They were sold at the market for basically nothing. And yet, Jesus says, not a single one of those sparrows falls to the ground apart from the Father's care and attention to them. So if that's true, and if you and I aren't common at all, we're actually extremely valuable to God. God knows each hair and has numbered it on our head. If that's true of the sparrows, and that's how the Father cares for us, how much more can we trust in his care and his attention towards us as followers of Jesus. That's the promise. Now, I, I want to be clear here, uh, Jesus' point in saying that isn't to say that the Father attentively cares for us and therefore nothing bad will ever happen to us. That's not his point. That wouldn't even make sense in the context of a passage where Jesus is telling his disciples that they may very well be persecuted and killed. 
I mean, even in the sparrow metaphor itself, I don't know if you caught it, the sparrows are falling to the ground, i.e. dying. So it's a dark metaphor, right? But the point Jesus is making is rather that opposition and persecution should never be interpreted as signs that God has forgotten about us or that he doesn't care for us. If God is aware of and attentive to every single sparrow that passes, how much more is he aware of and attentive to you when you face opposition, persecution, or even death? The third promise is that Jesus is also with us. Jesus is with us. In verses 40 through 42, the final verses of this passage, Jesus begins talking about how anyone who receives his disciples ultimately receives Jesus himself. How anyone who gives one of his disciples even just a cup of cold water, that was the bare minimum of hospitality in that day and age, even that person will be rewarded for having that response to Jesus' disciples. What Jesus is doing in these verses is that he is hitching our wagon to his, so to speak. We saw this some in last week's passage. If people accept Jesus' disciples, they accept Jesus himself. If they reject his disciples, then they reject Jesus himself. Jesus is saying that his presence and his authority reside completely with his people. We see this even clearer a little bit later on in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where Saul is persecuting God's people, and in the midst of all of it, Jesus shows up to him, blinds him, and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Now, that's weird. Uh, we don't have any record of Jesus interacting with Saul or Saul persecuting Jesus or having anything to do with that. But what Jesus is saying is that he has associated his people's acceptance with his acceptance and has associated his people's rejection with his rejection. Jesus fully associates us with him such that he associates people's persecution of us with him. So we aren't, we aren't walking in our power or our authority alone, but rather in his as well. So Jesus promises that all will be revealed, that God attentively cares for us, and that Jesus and his authority are with us. So finally, let's get practical with all of this. What instructions does Jesus give his disciples for navigating opposition? First instruction is that Jesus tells his disciples to be discerning and also innocent. Discerning and also innocent. So in verse 16, Jesus says that his disciples should be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Did that read a little bit weird to anybody else in the room? Were you like, what in the world is that talking about? So serpents in Jesus' day were often iconic for being wise and maybe even shrewd or cunning, while doves were more symbolic for things like innocence and purity. So Jesus here is trying to get his disciples to understand that in their response to opposition, they can be both innocent and intelligent. Sometimes people, certain people, I'll say, can be so focused on being innocent and morally pure that they end up being kind of naive. Have you ever met anybody like that? Don't point at them if they're sitting beside you, maybe. But some people can be so focused on being innocent and pure that they end up being a little bit naive. 
And then on the other end of the spectrum, I think there are other people that can be so focused on being strategic and shrewd and and really particular in their thinking that they actually end up being kind of shady and manipulative towards other people. Do you know anybody like that? So here, Jesus is saying that we don't have to pit those two things against one another in some sort of false dichotomy. You don't have to be ignorant and naive in order to be innocent, and you don't have to be shady and manipulative in order to be wise. There is a way to be both simultaneously and avoid the errors of either. And in fact, followers of Jesus should shoot for that kind of balance between those two things. Now, Jesus actually gives us one example of how to do that, how to pull this sort of balance off in the passage itself. Jesus says, if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. So he's telling his disciples that if they are singled out and persecuted, they don't have to just stay there and risk persecution and risk death for no reason. They can be smart and move on to the next town if that's the case. But then he also says in this passage, anyone who denies me before men, I will deny before the Father. So Jesus is essentially saying, feel free to be wise and strategic by moving on to the next town when you are persecuted, but do not lie and manipulate the situation by claiming not to know me when you do. Feel free to avoid persecution by being smart, but do not avoid persecution by being dishonest. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. I I think followers of Jesus, especially in the 21st century, would do well to try to capture that balance that Jesus is getting at in this passage. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Next, Jesus instructs his disciples to not be anxious about what to say. To not be anxious about what to say. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus says that when his disciples are handed over to be persecuted, they will often be given chances to bear witness about Jesus in front of various people. Now, I mentioned this briefly last week, but sometimes I I think Christians can get really fixated on sort of tips and tricks to help them share the gospel with people. So, so there's this method and there's this napkin drawing about how to have a conversation with a non-follower of Jesus and there's this acronym where it's like there's five steps to sharing about Jesus and when you put them all together, they spell out the word share or something, you know? Like there's, there's all these sort of methods and tips and tricks. And, and listen, I, I know that those methods have been really helpful to a lot of people. So I wanna I want tread carefully here. But I will tell you that for the most part, non-Christians can tell when you've already set the agenda for the conversation. People are smart. They're gonna pick up on the fact if you're on H and you've gotta get to E out of share by the end of the night. They're gonna pick up on that. And, And so at the bare minimum, maybe I would just say to you that we should at least be as dependent upon the Spirit of God giving us the words to say then we are focused on tips and tricks and methods and acronyms. Is that fair? We should at least be as concerned with what is the spirit guiding me to say in this moment and what truth most needs to be spoken and what question most needs to be asked. We should at least be a little more in tune to that than we are how do I get to the fifth step of this five-step conversation with this person. 
Because Jesus simply says, do not be anxious about what you are to say in those moments. Don't pre-formulate arguments and accusations and defenses and methods. Trust that when you need to say something to your non-Christian friend, the Spirit will give you what to say. Trust that we have a living, active, speaking, attentive God who can be trusted to speak to us when the moment arises. Do not be anxious about what you are to say. And then the final instruction that we're given in this passage is that we should fear God and not people. Fear God, not people. In verses 26 through 28, Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body, which probably sounds like a bit of a strange instruction to us, right? And probably to Jesus' disciples too. I have to think that when they heard Jesus say this in the moment, at least some of his disciples were going, Jesus being killed is actually the precise thing we were nervous about. So what do you mean don't fear people that can do that? That's exactly the thing that we're fearful of. They were nervous that they were gonna get handed over, persecuted and killed by people for representing Jesus. But Jesus is saying that instead of fearing the people that can do that, Fear God who has far more control over your ultimate destiny than anybody else does. Yes, the worst that people can do to you is kill you, but Jesus is saying that you as my disciples have the gift of knowing that there is actually something beyond death. And this all starts to make a lot more sense, I think, after Jesus' resurrection. At the resurrection, followers of Jesus, for, for all of us, death was actually robbed of its power for good. We see this laid out clearly in plenty of places in the scriptures. One of my favorites is Paul's letter to the Philippian church, where Paul says the famous line, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. To die is gain. What Paul is saying is that if he gets to go on living, if he survives the current mistreatment that he is a part of, then that means he gets to make Jesus known to more and more people and show off to more and more people who Jesus is, and that's great. But he also knows that if he dies, that means that he gets to go and be with Jesus forever. Paul is saying that death no longer has to loom over followers of Jesus. It no longer has to control us or paralyze us or guide every single one of our decisions because the worst that the world can do to us is actually the best possible outcome for us. Do you see how that works? Now, I realize that's probably not how a lot of us think about life and death, just on our own, right? But what this passage is showing us is that we now have the ability through Jesus to think in that way. We no longer have to fear even the worst because the worst for us is gain. That's why we don't need to fear those who, who might oppose us or persecute us or even kill us because death has lost its power over us in Jesus. That is why Jesus says in this passage that whoever loses his life will actually find it. And if that's true for us, should we ever face death, which let's be honest, most of us probably will not in this room for following Jesus. If that's true for us, should we ever face death, how true is it for us when we encounter lesser forms of opposition and persecution for the sake of the kingdom? 
How true is it when we face ridicule or resistance or marginalization because we follow Jesus? If death no longer has the ability to control and paralyze us as God's people, neither do any of those lesser things. You and I can face any and all of that with the boldness of the Holy Spirit in our souls and the message of Jesus on our lips precisely because of what Jesus accomplished in the cross and resurrection. So as we finish up today, I just wanna ask you two practical questions in response to all of this. I I know for a lot of what we're talking about today, it can kinda just feel like a whole different world. I mean, for Christians in 21st century America, especially in the Bible Belt in Knoxville, Tennessee, like maybe it just kinda feels like, yeah, I just, I don't really see this being a struggle for me. Like I just don't think I'm gonna be that mistreated because I follow Jesus. So I wanna just give us two practical questions to sit on. Maybe in our, discuss in our life groups, discuss in our families, whatever we need to do. Two questions to consider. First, if I don't currently experience any opposition for following Jesus, why not? If I don't currently experience this type of opposition, why is that? Jesus says in this passage that if his disciples are following him, if they are living life the way that he says to live life, that they should expect to be treated negatively from time to time because of that, because of how they live. The the very nature of living a countercultural type of life is that you can expect the culture around you to at times be confused and put off and bothered by how you live. You can just expect that to happen. So, if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus in this room, and no one ever reacts to your life in that sort of way at all, it's probably worth asking why that's the case. Why do people never seem to oppose the way that you follow Jesus? I think one reason could be that no one ever opposes your way of life because you may not spend enough time around non-Christians for there to be any opposition. If you live the majority of your life inside the confines of Christian family and Christian friends and inside the almighty Christian bubble, right, you probably aren't going to encounter a ton of opposition because you're spending the majority of your time around people who do life exactly the same as you do, who have the same value system that you have. It's possible that you may have sort of insulated yourself from any type of opposition from the outside world. So maybe the biggest takeaway for you from this teaching this morning is that you need to figure out how to somehow share life more consistently with those who don't follow Jesus. Maybe that's the question. Maybe it's, I I don't know that I interact with non-Christians enough for them to oppose anything that I'm doing, and the goal in spending time with them is not to be opposed, but it is a good question to ask of how might I need to intersect my life with those who don't follow Jesus and get outside of the Christian bubble just a little bit more than I currently do. Or, I think another potential explanation for why you don't encounter much opposition and this one may be a lot harder to hear, might be that no one opposes your way of life because nothing about your life is different enough for them to oppose. 
If your life looks nearly identical to your non-Christian friend or neighbor or coworker or classmate's life, what exactly would they be objecting to? If you think about and go about your job and your career the exact same way that a non-Christian does, if you go about your sexuality and your sexual expression the exact same way that they do, if you approach money and possessions the exact same way that they do, if you consume alcohol in the same quantities that they do, they're probably not going to object to much about your life because there's nothing for them to object to. So maybe the practical step for you, if, if that sounds familiar at all to you, is to examine and re-examine how you approach any number of those things in your life such that there starts to be a distinction between you and the average non-follower of Jesus. Maybe it's worth asking, what do I need to approach differently so that there actually is some difference between me and a non-Christian? But I think the question itself, wherever it takes us, is worth asking and reflecting on. If I don't really experience any opposition for following Jesus, why don't I? What needs to change in response to that? The second question that I want us to end on this morning is if and when you experience opposition, how can you respond to that opposition like Jesus? How can I respond to opposition when I encounter it like Jesus would respond. So I, I think we should constantly be asking, how did Jesus respond to opposition and persecution in his life? It, it wasn't by throwing a tantrum about it. It wasn't by crying out and complaining and asserting his rights. That's not how Jesus responded to being mistreated. And it certainly wasn't by him inventing persecution when it didn't actually exist. So what is the right response for us to have? How did Jesus respond to opposition? Makes me think of a few more words from the book of 1 Peter. This is from chapter 2, verse 23. We'll put it up on the screen. When they hurled their insults at him, him being Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I think one of the easiest, most instinctive things for us to do as human beings is to treat people exactly how they treat us in response. They exclude you, so you exclude them. They talk about you behind your back, so you talk about them behind their back. They make you feel small, so you make them feel even smaller. That's the natural way to respond in the flesh to being mistreated, is it not? Retaliation is the way of the world in a million different ways. But as God's people grounded in God's promises, what if we, like Jesus, entrusted ourselves and our outcome to the one who judges justly? What if we felt liberated to, to not retaliate because it's not up to us to settle the score? What if we carried on with our mission, carried on with our message that we've been given because we don't expect better treatment than our rabbi received? We don't expect to be treated better than Jesus himself was treated. 
And because Jesus showed us what it looks like to trust God with what ultimately happened to him. He didn't retaliate. He didn't debate and argue people into submission. He didn't cry out and complain whenever he was persecuted. He took it in stride, and he saw each of those situations as an opportunity to display the countercultural kingdom of God and to fix his trust on the one who is truly in charge and can be trusted with justice. So my prayer is that we as a church family, each and every one of us that claim to follow Jesus, that we would be filled with the promises and the presence of Jesus. That whatever this world takes from us, we would say, that's fine, you can take it. Because my hope is not in those things, my hope is not even in my own life. My hope is in the one who can resurrect the dead, and the one who is in charge, the one who can be trusted with my outcome, and the one who is worth following with everything I have, even when it goes poorly for me. That's my prayer for our church family. Let's pray together to that end. Father, um, This is not one of those topics that's fun to talk about. Um, We so often would prefer to think that when we follow you and when we do life your way, um, that you'll make everything go well for us as a result. But it's sort of a give and take deal and you know, if we if we sort of give in, if we, if we do life your way, that you'll respond by giving us everything that we want and a life that we always wanted. I think passages like this sort of, um, sort of jar us awake, make us realize that that's not how your kingdom works. Um, God, that ultimately we do get life forever with you, but in this world and the kingdom of this world and the powers of this world war against us and our message with everything in them and sometimes that means that we get ostracized and we get marginalized and we get left out and we get judged prematurely and we get scoffed at So God, for for any of us that are in that place where we're experiencing opposition for following you, God, I pray that you would bring these promises so near and dear to our hearts, that you would help us to remember who you are and who you've promised to be in the midst of those types of situations. God, that we would find confidence and courage in who you are. And God, for those of us that, that maybe would say, if we were completely honest, we, we haven't encountered much opposition at all. Um, it just, that hasn't been a part of our story or at least hasn't very often. God, I pray that we would think about if there's something that needs to change in us. If, if maybe we have sort of bowed to the cultural pressures and to even the fear of being rejected or looked down on. 
And God, if we have, I pray that we would instead bow to you and your kingdom and not to anything in this world. And God, for all of us, I just pray that you would help us to find our, our hope, our confidence, our assurance in who you are. God, that who you are and what your kingdom is, that that would be enough for us and we wouldn't want other things over and above that. So God, would you do whatever work needs to be done? Would you convict? Would you expose? Would you shape? Would you guide? Would you lead us? God, would you help us to become more like you? Would you help us be willing to face whatever opposition might come? because you and your kingdom are worth it. We ask this in your name. Amen.